Welcome to today's episode of the Bible Brush Up Podcast. We are continuing our series through 12 weeks of Torah reading. And today we find ourselves back in the book of Leviticus. And then in our last episode, we explored some of the offerings that are covered in the initial chapters of the book of Leviticus. And today we're going to look at dietary laws and also take a few moments to discuss the Day of Atonement, which is really the climax of the book, found itself in the middle of all of the various categories of content that are covered. And so let's take a look at the dietary laws. They begin in Leviticus chapter 11, and we're very familiar with this, I'm sure, as we see this becomes a contentious issue in the New Testament as Gentiles are being converted and they are um, coming into the church and Jewish people are discussing, those who are in charge are discussing what to do with these Gentiles. Do we make them eat what we eat? Do we make them, uh, do we make them go through circumcision? These are various um, issues that centered around this transition from Judaism to Christianity. And the dietary laws obviously become an issue uh, in Peter's mind, but God reveals to him in that blanket that came down when he was sitting on Simon the Tanner's roof uh, before he was to go to Cornelius and preach the gospel and see the conversion of these Gentiles, uh, this blanket that came down had all sorts of unkosher foods, foods that would have violated the dietary laws. And in receiving this vision, God communicates to him that he is making all things clean. And so this is just a reminder that uh, they were very strict about what they would eat and what they could touch. And uh, things like pig and catfish and shrimp, those were not on their menu. And uh, this all goes back to this period of time when God is revealing to them the sort of things that they could eat and the things that they could not. And that's found here in Leviticus and uh, obviously is lived out throughout um, the Old Testament from this point forward. And so why are these laws given? Why are some things considered clean and why are some things considered unclean? And that's a very difficult question to answer. And many people have uh, come up with um, hypotheses about why this may be. And uh, there are some who have suggested there's an ethical reason that God has provided this food group of clean versus unclean. And by restricting the number of animals that could be killed in order to be eaten and to be sacrificed. He is actually protecting animal life in general. And so he's limiting the scope of death for the animals and therefore communicating that their lives are important too. Now, most of us probably won't buy that one and think that that's a legitimate answer to the question. Uh, so we can move on from there, but that is one suggestion that has been thrown out there. The next view would be the hygienical view, which focuses upon the health benefits of the clean animal versus the unclean animal. And this suggestion assumes that God is using these categories to protect the Jewish people by giving them cleaner cuts of meat and um, foods that would not carry as much disease and therefore providing them with health benefits superior to the surrounding nations and the things that they were eating. And while there may be an element of truth to this, and certainly you can compare some of the items on the list and say, yeah, this one's healthier than, than the one over there that's unclean, uh, I don't think it's always that clear cut. And so this one 
really fails to answer all of the questions that come uh, regarding clean and unclean animals. However, I will say one of the great arguments for this view is the fact that there was clean and unclean categories prior to the giving of this law. Noah coming off the ark seems to have collected two of every animal except the clean animals. He had seven of them and when they get off the ark, God commands them to eat. And this seems to be the first command for them to eat meat. And this may indicate that he commanded him to bring clean animals, not only for sacrifice, because he builds an altar when he gets off and he worships God with it. So there's already this idea of clean and unclean, and I'm assuming clean animals would have went on the altar. Similar to Abel bringing a sacrifice to God of his sheepfold back in uh, the early part of Genesis. But there seems to be a connection between what they can eat and cleanliness, and that's already established. Now, it may be established for other reasons, but it seems probable that it could be connected to the health benefits. Uh, the next reason some people suggest that there is this category of clean and unclean is because there is a symbolism tied to the various animals. And so they may say something to the effect of, you know, the description of clean animals parting the hoof and chewing the cud, maybe symbolically tied to our uh, language and what we say and the things that we do, the hoof representing our feet, our hands, what we do. And they may say there's symbolism there that is tied to the clean animals. However, the Bible doesn't clearly make those connections. And so while you can certainly maybe tie uh, biblical truths together in that way, sometimes that's a little dangerous if Scripture has not clearly made those connections for us, because you can make connections that aren't there and then come to conclusions that were never intended, and then you're a cult leader before you know it. And so the next uh, one that we look at is the aesthetical. Some have proposed that these categories of clean and unclean are based on the aesthetics of the animal meaning that the clean ones are the pretty ones and the unclean ones are the ugly ones. You know, you've got the pretty sheep versus the ugly snake, which one you're going to choose. Um, however, it seems odd that the clean animals are the ones that we're killing. And those are the ones you think you wouldn't want to kill, that you'd want to protect. And it's the ugly snake that you want to pound its head in and you know you want to take it and tie it in a knot and everything. But those are the ones you can't even touch. Um, which maybe you don't want to touch a snake. There, this could go back and forth, but there seems to be little evidence from the context of Leviticus 11 that these categories are based on the beauty of the animal. Plus, that's subjective to begin with. Some people might actually think snakes are beautiful. I've known people that have thought snakes are beautiful, and they collect them. Um, but not everybody's going to think a cow is beautiful and so that's going to be very subjective. So I don't think that one solves the problem. Uh, the last suggested view uh, is a theological category, that these animals are considered clean or unclean based on theological purposes, really combating the ancient pagan uses of animals. And so many of the animals that are on the unclean list have found their way into being deities and being um, representations of some of the other pagan gods in the area. 
And so God is saying, we're different than these other communities, and we are not going to call things clean that they are worshiping. We're not going to call things clean that find their way into these pagan systems as predominant life sources. But at the same time, the problem with that is that many of the animals that are on the clean list are still worshipped in some of these pagan cult systems. And uh, one of those being the bull. The bull is a primary animal within the sacrificial system of the Levitical law, and yet the bull is the very thing that they were replicating with the golden calf when Moses came down from Sinai. And that's based off of the god Baal from Egypt. And that would rule that out under the theological category. So all of these have their problems, and more likely God establishes a list, and the list is not necessarily based on any human reason, but he just lays out a very detailed account that would indeed separate them from the rest of the people. It would make them look different than everybody else, and that's the primary purpose of these Levitical laws. They are to make Israel distinct and separate and different to be their own people, and the more detailed and the more unique you can make these laws, the more they will be a different community from everybody else. If they have the same customs as everybody, then they really just blend into the other cultures around them, and they're not a unique people group. But the more you can define them by what they eat and what they do, where they go, how they worship, um, that really creates a community, and that's what God is doing. He's creating a people out of the Israelites. But let's turn our attention to the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, this is a very important day, and it comes once a year. Whereas all the other sacrifices that were talked about last time happen on a regular basis. The priests are constantly at work. They are constantly taking bulls and taking goats and taking birds, and they are uh, slaughtering them, and they are splattering their blood all over the place, and um, blood is being splattered on them. I mean, it's pretty, pretty ugly affair when you think about it, with just blood going everywhere. But the... Day of Atonement was different. The Day of Atonement, you really had the high priest and him alone doing most of the work. And he was the one going inside of the tent of meeting. He was the one making uh, sacrifice first for himself. He couldn't take care of the nation's sin until he took care of his own sin. And so the bull that was sacrificed was for his sin. It was a sin offering. And so he had to slaughter this bull, and he had to sprinkle the blood of the bull. Uh, he had to light the incense in the holy place so that the smoke would filter into the most holy place that was on the other side of that veil that had the big cherubim on it that warned you not to come in if you were not uh, approved, if it was not uh, an assignment from God, which this is the only opportunity for someone to go behind the veil. This is it. No one else ever goes behind the veil, ever. And if they do, they die. And so now the high priest wearing his full uh, garment, his bells, so that people know whether he's still alive or not, he goes back there with smoke just filling the room where he can't see. He's kind of flying blind at this point, and he is sprinkling blood on the uh, various components of the mercy seat, which he's commanded to do. 
And this is to atone for his own sin, and it begins the process of him atoning for the sins of Israel. But I want you to see the symbolism. The reason I like covering this is because it makes a great connection to the New Testament. When you get to the book of Hebrews and you're reading about Jesus Christ, he's the one who has access to God. He's the one who has made a way to the mercy seat. And so he, as our high priest, he goes into God. But He's superior because he does not approach God once a year, and he doesn't have to go through the process of sacrificing a bull in order to have his sins atoned for so that he can turn around and atone for our sins, but rather he is a high priest that has constant eternal access to the Father, and so he goes to him on our behalf constantly, and he lives there in his presence, at his right hand. He is seated seated on the right hand of God who sits on his throne, sits on his mercy seat in heaven. And so he is in the Holy of Holies in heaven, always mediating on our behalf, always making atonement for our sins. So that's the first imagery we see is Christ as our high priest. But the next thing we see is this idea of the scapegoat and the goat that actually becomes the uh, sacrifice for the people of Israel. Two goats are taken. One of them is going to have um, the privilege of being sacrificed. He's going to have his throat slit. He's going to have his blood splattered. He's going to have uh, his body burned. This is representative of the sacrifice of Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. One had to pay the penalty so the other could go free. And the second goat is the one that's released into the wilderness. It's the one called the scapegoat. Um, And so these two goats represent um, different aspects of Jesus's ministry because both represent Christ in a way. In one sense, the one that dies represents Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross for us so that we could go free. But the interesting thing about the other goat is that his Um, the people put their hands on him and they confess their sins over him and he symbolically bears the sins of the people outside of the camp. He takes the sins of the people and goes off into the wilderness. And so in a sense that represents Christ because he bore our sins. So all of this is very symbolic of what Christ does. Um, But interestingly enough, all of the uh, carcasses the bull and the the goats and such are burned outside of the camp, whereas most of the sacrifices are uh, carried out on the altar inside of the uh, courtyard of the tabernacle. These are taken outside of the camp and burned, which is exactly what happened to Jesus when he died for us. When he laid down his life for us, he was not crucified inside of the city precinct of Jerusalem, but rather he was taken outside of the city. And that's where he walked up to Golgotha. That's where he was crucified uh, on Calvary. And that's where he paid the price so that you and I could go free. He bore our sins and it is because of him that we are considered guiltless. He has atoned for us. And so be thankful for uh, our scapegoat, Jesus Christ, this day. And we will cover more of the Levitical law in our next episode. We'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.